0: Hi, welcome to Carbon Design's MindShift Podcast. I'm Scott Gellum, and I'll be your host today. We'll explore new ways of thinking, new technologies, and new insights to help drive business performance. So let's get started. Hi, welcome to MindShift. Today's guest is Leslie Tulio, who is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at McDermott Will and Emery. And uh, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think a lot of people are thinking about right now is brand transformation, especially with um, all the changes in the impact of uh, the pandemic. People are repositioning their their, uh, offerings and their services in the marketplace. So welcome, Leslie. It's great to have you.
1: Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it.
0: So for our audience, tell us a little bit about McDermott, Will & Emery, um, and a little bit about your background, and, and we'll go from there.
1: Sure. Um, so I've been working in marketing and communications for, I guess, about 25 years now. I actually grew up on the comm side of the house, um, primarily working in external communications and advocacy work, uh, working with a lot of nonprofit organizations, governments, technology companies, uh, sort of running the gamut. Uh, and then about 15 years ago, really expanded my scope uh, to encompass a lot more of the marketing and uh, brand communications work, um, which was sort of... Right at the tipping point is, I think, probably where most marketers and comms folks would agree that there started to be a pretty open blending of the two fields. Right. <laughs> uh, yep. Perhaps where some of us um, got more caught in the middle than others. Right. And um, for good or for bad. Uh, currently, I'm at McDermott, Will & Emery, as you mentioned, uh, McDermott is one of the 30 largest law firms in the United States. And um, we are a global presence, though, with uh, 13 offices around the world. Um, and strategic alliances in in Asia and elsewhere. Uh, I joined McDermott about three and a half years ago uh, with the remit to help the firm really leapfrog uh, from where they were in a marketing and communications position in their market to really be um, to really display themselves, I should say, as the innovators and the creative thinkers um, that they are. So it's been a really interesting journey. Uh, Prior to McDermott, I was at CEB, uh, which many folks may have known previously as Corporate Executive Board in the the spirit of talking about brand transformation and brand changes. Um, But I spent the first 15 years of my career on the agency side. So as I mentioned, working across uh, disciplines and industries. So um, lots of brand conversations. Uh, Before, I think the industry really talked about brand as sort of the pivotal thing that held both your Um, employee base and your client base together as one.
0: Yeah. And so I I probably should be a little bit more specific about the conversation. This is going to be about brand transformation and professional services, which is very different. I mean, you don't see a lot of that taught. You don't see that in business school. You can read a lot about brand transformations in the CPG industry, but you don't get a lot of insight around how to transform a brand when it involves your services of being, you know, delivered by people. And the people being the brand, and so um, talk about some of those challenges in in doing a transformation like that when you've got you know your delivery and, and your product, and a lot of your brand is is built around the people inside the organization.
1: For sure, I, I think any I think any good marketer would probably argue that regardless of your industry, your brand is tied up in your people, right? Yeah, um, right. To, to get to the authenticity of your brand, your your employees have to buy into it and have to advocate for it. Uh, But I do think there are special nuances, both in professional services and in nonprofits, um, having worked with with them quite a bit as well, that is very different than a CPG or even a tech company. Um, And I think the big thing is that the hierarchical structure of decision-making is much more diffuse in professional services and nonprofits. there's, There's so much more emphasis put on consensus Um, Because of the structures of the organizations, whether that's, you know, the care for the constituents in a nonprofit setting, whether it's partnership and and quite literal ownership um, in some of these LLP organizations, or just simply in the fact that you need to have enough sort of handholding across the firm and other professional services businesses um, to really bring the brand to life in a meaningful way, right? That you can't have, you don't want to spend all this time and money and effort and then have your folks go into market and splinter the brand, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is usually what professional services, in my experience, is trying to solve for. So I do think there's a lot more emphasis that needs to be placed on, not consensus to the lowest common denominator, but consensus at a minimum around the why, right? The so why are you investing in this? Why is it the right time? And what is the benefit both to the firm and to the individuals who have to carry the brand out into the market?
0: Yeah, right, right. How do you balance? I mean, this is almost the analogy I would use here is the Articles of Confederation versus the Constitution, right? So how yeah. do you balance the power in the and in the goal to create a practice brand or create an individual attorney brand with building a strong corporate brand?
1: Yeah, you pray a lot. Um, <laughs> I think beyond that, it does come back to two things. Like, look, there's a little bit of a recipe to it, right? I think it's not rocket science to, on, on one end of the spectrum, right? It's that idea of you have to sort of have some equal parts vision, strategy, and, and good objective data right, that people yeah. are willing to yeah. listen to. But I think the part of the recipe that people forget about and that ends up being the most important part, you know, as our grandmothers would say, like a pinch of courage,
0: yeah. it's a
1: really big pinch, right? It's, there has to be a lot of organizational courage going into this. Um, yeah. and, and people have to sort of steel themselves for this because mm-hmm. even the people who don't think it's emotional, it becomes very, very sure. emotional. Yeah. Exactly to your analogy, Right. Because they were part of writing these articles of confederation, right?
0: yeah, right. They didn't
1: right. Walk in and say, "I'm adopting this this constitution," right, or "I'm I'm kind of abide by it." They were part of it and continue to be part of rewriting sort of the doctrine of the organization, and so they're very deeply invested, and um, and so I think that's a big piece of it is understanding the courage um, and then balancing, instilling that courage in and helping people balance the emotion, yeah. but. At the end of the day, that comes back to the other piece of it, which is you have to be able to show personal benefit. Um, My experience has been generally very positive where you get to a partner or a principal or, you know, even a a CEO who is doing this or who is fighting this, either one, for all the right reasons.
0: It's because they
1: believe in the organization, because they care about it a lot. Um, And usually you appeal to one of two things either the personal benefit or that deep care for the institution and really being able to show how making the change benefits yeah i think the one common denominator across is that everyone i've talked to in senior leadership positions understands the need to do this for the client right to to make sure the client really understands the value that we're bringing to market and when you can get everybody at least looking through the client lens yeah. It makes it much easier for them to extract a lot of their personal feelings from the process.
0: Yeah, it's, it's oftentimes very hard for people to understand if you're not in marketing, what it means to have a brand or what branding is. Right. How did you get started? Because you, you've got, got to drive consensus. You have a lot of strong, smart people inside your organization. How did you f- figure out where to get started on this journey?
1: You know, this is um, not my first rodeo, right, as they would say. So I think you and I have talked before about you learn a lot from failure. <laughs> every, time, every time you fail, hopefully you get smarter, you get better.
0: That's I the optimistic it. look of it. But sure, yeah. I'll take it. Glasses <laughs> has full go.
1: <laughs> so when I think about, you know, the brain transformation we went through at McDermott, much of it was really driven by the partnership themselves. And feeling out the tipping point, feeling out the readiness. Yeah. You know, we we didn't walk in day one and say we're going to blow up this brand, right? This was a very successful firm with incredibly talented lawyers and professionals working right. Yeah. Right. So it was really about how do we get to the yes ands, right? How do right. we keep all this amazing talent, this amazing work, but help help the market see it differently, see what what and who we really were. Um, and so we were really fortunate in this situation. And I say we, because I, you know, I certainly don't go on this journey by myself. This takes a village. Um, <laughs> but we were able to really do a hardcore listening tour um, and help, you know, in this case, our partners realize how much they wanted this. And um, I think, you know, they didn't realize, and to your point about how do you help people understand a brand, having genuine conversations that helps people understand, like, forget the logo, forget the collateral. Yeah. What do you want clients to know you for? What do you want them to know that you know about this firm that is amazing that they don't, and um, and it really helps I think people center around yeah we have this incredibly important message that we need to get out there yeah and the vehicles that we have in place to do that right now aren't working we need a better we need a better mousetrap right and I think when when folks come to that on their own and you can aggregate that data right because yeah, it is. Better, right and share that back with the people who need to be the change agents, um, they're much more likely to embrace it because it's coming from themselves and from each other. It's not marketing driving a bus through, we're going to make this change.
0: Yeah, yeah. How often did you and how did you involve those people inside the process? And, And how often were you updating them and communicating with them?
1: We ended up having a, a smaller core group. You know, certainly we had probably four or five people, including folks, many folks from our executive leadership team, who were yeah. very engaged in the process. Right on a, um, you know, once we were sort of in it, probably every couple of weeks, getting at least you know small updates. Um, but then I had a broader group of folks who were more influential across the different practice groups and across the different regions. Yeah. Um, who were going to be the influencers for the broader partnership. Um, And those folks, it it was, it really depended on the person, right? And how engaged they wanted to be and how much they wanted to feed into um, and even what kinds of things we updated them on. I had some folks who cared deeply about where we were going with the position and the competitive assessment um, and the messages and others who cared deeply about like, how cool is my collateral going to look, right? Yeah. Um, And so, you know, just like we talk about in other aspects of marketing and communications, you have to personalize the journey, Right? Yeah. So you have to really listen to and provide sort of on-demand services for those folks. But uh-huh. I didn't have to do it for 2,000 people, right? I, yeah. had to do it, I had to do it for 15 people who then carried the water for everyone
0: else. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it, it's amazing when you do that because it is a big upfront investment. But it's amazing how much, how eye-opening that can be, I think, for the marketing and communications team, too, and how much we can learn by genuinely listening, one of the things I've learned over my career, because I certainly did it wrong early on, is that you go into these processes with false assumptions or artificial sort of assumptions about what good looks like and, yeah. and what, you, what the other end is going to look like. And the more, I think, open you can be to what might surprise the market and what really does feel good to clients, yeah. um, you know, the end result can end up being very different.
0: And and you guys are a global organization. You have offices all around the world. How did you incorporate the regional, you know, needs into this process?
1: Yeah, a twofold process, right? One, again, you know, I talked about that sort of the three parts: vision, strategy, data. Um, right. So when you think about being a global organization, no matter how open minded I think I am or how inclusive I think I am, I'm still American, right? Um, and so <laughs> I relied a lot on data. Yeah, uh, that was. The same, right? Asking the same questions in every region, understanding the cultural nuances. So, uh, finding a balance between data and then regional ambassadors, right? The same folks that we would have used in in the U.S. or Canada or wherever else. What we were bringing in office managing partners. We were bringing in people who were effective rainmakers to to understand how they were viewing it. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of testing ultimately of both the messages and the visual identity. Sure. And this one in particular, we had some redos to do.
0: Oh. Yeah. Right? So yeah. It
1: was not sort of the smooth sailing you would anticipate. So,
0: well, I don't know if I'm <laughs> <of my> like <laughs> anything that is global.
1: Uh, I should uh, say, we thought we were done. We weren't done. That's
0: yeah. Crazy. Yeah. What, what are some of the data sources? Were you guys doing brand, brand tracking studies in the region? Talk about the data sources that you're using. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And again, I would say in professional services in particular, data is a great equalizer.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Um, because there are, there are personality issues, there are emotional issues. The data can be very unemotional, right? Which is great. Um, and it's, it's not marketing's voice. It's not somebody else's voice. It's, it's the market's voice. Right. Going into the process and our research process, we, we use six different sources of primary and secondary research. Yeah. So we had annual engagement surveys that really got um, employee voice, for lack of a better word, Um, We did competitive analysis um, and evaluation, both on our direct peers and our aspirational peers. Right. We built a brand benchmark study of our own, and that had two pieces. One piece was really very client-facing, trying to figure out, okay, there's perhaps 60 to 100 different attributes that somebody might weight Right. Yeah. When they're thinking about selecting a firm, we narrowed that down to 10. Right. So we still every year now measure our firm, our awareness, our progress, our consideration
0: yeah.
1: against those 10 drivers of purchase that really matter for us and for our industry. Um, and then we also used, you know, broadly available surveys um, that were out sort of market assessment surveys and then a, a very robust qualitative program internally of one on one interviews.
0: Yeah, I'm interested. And you were mentioning the attributes. I mean, this is a business that in some ways you have very rational drivers on why you would select somebody because of their expertise and experience, et cetera. But it's also a person and there's very much emotions, especially in some of your practices, probably a very emotional buyer sitting on the other end. So how did you, how were you able to get to the mix of the rational and emotional attributes that really defined who you guys were or are? Rather.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You have to ask, um, and I know that sounds really simple, but a lot of people don't. You know, we again we come in with these ingoing assumptions or these artificial assumptions that are are often wrong. So we took the time to ask, and we asked everyone. We asked employees, we asked partners, we asked clients, right? Um, and we've talked before about professional services are so different because we serve very different, different practice groups or different yeah. business units, might serve very different end users. But exactly to your point, the thing that they have in common is they're all people, right? And generally, executives that we're selling to in whatever capacity are facing very similar problems, right? They have similar pressures. Um, And what we really learned in law in particular, but we also saw this at CEB, um, when you're working really closely in one-on-one or small group, you know, one-to-three, one-to-one situations, it's not the rational that wins out. Right. It is the emotional because sure. you are spending so much time with these people. Right. Yeah, yeah. So whether our clients were coming from CPG, from industrials, from healthcare, from life sciences, the things that were common were more than the things that weren't. Right. They had the basic procurement checkboxes. Right. And the basic expertise checkboxes. But there was also so much around. My God, I have to spend so much time in a room with these guys. I want to like them. Right. I right. want to believe that they're really invested in my business. Um, And ironically for us, it's not ironically, fortunately for us, it's where we really excelled, right? That we were legitimately good people with real passion for our clients' businesses and clients recognize that. Um, And so, you know, what I always look at at the end of the day, because I've Told you before, like I, I'm a huge believer in the power of a visual identity. Yeah. But I think what separates the wheat from the chaff is your positioning and your messaging, right? Sure, and how authentic that is to your organization, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and whether you can find that white space. And so for us, we checked all the procurement boxes. We really found that we had huge white space opportunity in actually bringing to market the fact that we were more than great lawyers we are full legitimate partners, right? Like yeah. We're invested, we're passionate, we're creative, and we can prove it. Um, and so that was a huge advantage.
0: Was there a surprise that came out of this for the organization or for you as you went through this process? A lot of times you've, you discover things along the way and some of the things you were just alluding to in terms of the, we're more than just attorneys. Um, anything that stand out in, ter- in terms of like a big surprise or some kind of epiphany that you, you or the others had as you went through the process?
1: I mean, there were a couple, right? Certainly, in the spirit of being self-aware as a department, I also walked in with some artificial assumptions. Having (laughs) these people, that I a couple pleasant surprises is that some of the people that I thought I was going in to mitigate risk with, right, to try to to try to keep them as um, as far at bay as possible by bringing them in. Those people I thought were going to be giant detractors. Some of them ended up being our biggest advocates. Um, and that was an incredibly pleasant surprise. Yeah. Uh, and people that I could really learn from and rely on because they knew the firm so well. And, um, you know, so people aren't, I think the first one is people aren't necessarily who you think they are, right? So you <laughs> your, your own assumptions there. Um, I think another really interesting one, and it was very different actually, if I compare CEB and McDermott. We went in with the McDermott rebrand looking and saying, like, all the big firms are changing their names. They're all moving to one word names. They're all doing these things. Right. And then in the spirit of asking and listening to what the market says, we ended up keeping our full name. And it wasn't because we, we couldn't figure out how to sell the partnership or we couldn't do the things. It was because clients said it had meaning. Right. Yeah. Clients said it, yeah. it had a level of gravitas and of legacy and of history. And ironically, we ended up making a, a bigger splash by keeping our full name, right, and, and, and investing in that legacy and, uh, and yeah. history than, than shortening it. People were, that was part of the conversation. Like, you didn't shorten your name. Like, no, and, and let me tell you why. Yeah. Um, so it was yeah. an interesting way to talk about it. Whereas with CEB, when we went from corporate executive board to CEB, clients were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, <I> actually, <laughs> um, so it just really goes to show that so much of it needs to be driven by client behavior and client perception Uh, and the big win really is like i said when you can find the white space between the commonality between what your internal team believes and what your market believes right and you can you can find those spaces and then figure out the smaller extract from that right that your competitors are not focusing on
0: yeah
1: um like that's a huge win it's incredibly difficult but it's a huge win
0: yeah. What did you hear from customers when you rolled out the new branding?
1: Our clients were incredibly open minded and actually uh, really embraced it. I think probably that we actually launched at McDermott. We launched our brand at uh, our JP Morgan event in January. And it's a huge healthcare, yep. life sciences, PE event. So really a big, sweet spot for us. And the client comment, I think that was my favorite, is we had one um, healthcare PE client walk in and say, "Oh, this is beautiful. You finally feel much more like us."
0: <laughs>
1: right? And there, yeah. I think that was that was really the quote that said, "Like, yeah, I I relate to this. Right? This feels like you're you're where you're supposed to be. You feel like you're one of us." Yeah. And I think you know that was big. Um, I didn't have any detractors. I think there again, there's more fear inside the organization for change. Yeah. There is external. And yeah. I would come full circle to what you said. Like, it's there's still certainly a big portion of the population that struggles to understand what is brand, what is branding. Right. But I think it's become such a big part of the common lexicon now, right? And how we talk about brands instead of companies and things right. like that. Right. That a lot of our clients, because we do tend to serve really big, sophisticated organizations not their first radio either. Right. They're used to seeing rebrands. They understand the refresh. And and I think they were really happy to hear us talking about what makes us special because it also validates their choice. Right. There's a reason they work with us and it makes it easier for them to be proud of it too.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I've observed organizations with that. Um, There's such a big effort in rebranding and, Um, so much energy goes into it. And then getting to the launch, there's kind of like, okay, I've done my job, brands launch, but you're not done, right? You've got to have people who are talking the talk. They're living it. Um, How do you continue on? And what, what what was the strategy after you got the launch, right? Now it's almost like the heavier work is, okay, now we have to become that brand that we just launched. And we've got to be able to talk with our customers in a different way. We've got to be able to deliver things in a way that's aligning with the way we're positioned now. So talk about that effort. It's like the post-launch effort and how you continue to transform the brand.
1: Yeah, I think that's the, the bigger challenge. It feels hard to say that you know, because the, the anxiety getting up to a launch and getting through a launch yeah. is right, so intense. But it's exactly your point, which is it's just out there. Right. It's just it's like a baby. Right. I mean, if you think about it, it's like growing, growing a, band is, a brand is sort of like raising a baby. Right. They, um, You have to evolve. You have to change. You have to do like all those things that help something grow up and be recognized and be mature. Right. Uh, and I think this is actually, for me, the benefit of having grown up on the comm side. Right. Is that when you're focusing on that message and you're focusing on the position in the market, you know, Until, like, right when you or our team or our people are so sick of hearing something, right, so sick of saying it, it's only just then that people are starting to get it. Um, And I try to use that analogy, right, just because we see something every day inside the organization doesn't mean the market has embraced it or understood it.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: And so, yeah, I think there is a huge part of take the break, celebrate the success, and then jump right back in and really double down on what's next yeah. right? And, and what's being heard. And I do think that's why regular measurement and regular engagement matters yep. so much. Yeah. Because if you don't know whether it's working, just because it looks beautiful doesn't mean it's working, right? Yeah. Just because it tends to go at the beginning doesn't mean it's actually breaking through. And by the way, your competitors are evolving too, right? So the goal often in refresh is to stay a step ahead or to get a step ahead you can lose it as quickly as you got it, right, if you don't continue to invest. Um, so we really focused a lot on trying to be incredibly disciplined about the brand in the first year, the visual aspects of the brand in the first year. We said, we're not messing with it. The, the guidelines are the, what the guidelines are. You know, there's no sort of evolution. There's no pushing the boundaries for the first year. Let's see what works. Let's see how it, um, how it plays in the market. But let's really test and evolve the message, whether that's through email, through social, through yeah. events. Um, you know, like making sure it's working and playing there. And then after year one, we went back and looked at everything based on our brand benchmark and said, what's working? Are we staying ahead? Where do we need to push the boundaries? And um, we're two and a half years into the visual identity portion yeah. of it the- and just now starting to kind of expand and play and push. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, because we know that we're known now.
0: <laughs> now. Now that's the risky part. Now we're known. Um, what's interesting about this and what you said is, Brands are transitioning all the time because you're, you're a living, breathing organization. You're, your customer or your clients are experiencing your brand. Your people are representing the brand and things are evolving every day. And it's whether or not you have the ability to sense that and then be able to understand, are we matching it based on how our clients are experiencing? Are we representing ourselves in a way that truly reflects the way they're having those experiences? And so to your point, having those ability to continue to measure along those lines to say, where are we? That's a really interesting concept that I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of organizations who are really brand sensing, they brand track, but are they really truly brand sensing in saying, are we really matching up with the way that our clients are experiencing kind of the feedback you got at JPM, which is like, oh, wow, finally, you guys have kind of caught up. Um, so that's that's a super interesting kind of insight now that you had some time, some distance from this, would you do anything differently? Would you do things in different order? Any kind of things that step back and said, okay, um, you know, we talked about learnings, um, doing things not necessarily right the first time, but then learning from that. What would you take away as a learning here if you were to do this again?
1: It was perfect, you know.
0: Um, I- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, ask the question.
1: Um, to be really frank, we probably bit off a little more than we could chew. Right. All at once. Um, I'm glad we did, because I think, you know, the risk is if you don't take on too much, you never get it all done. So I don't I don't regret it. But I think if I had to do it again and I could do it in a perfect world, I would have a few more. I would have a little less anxiety on actual launch day about um, whether the website was going to launch and actually, you know, be available to everyone, whether (laughs) whether our social channels had been updated properly. Right. Because I think the other it's a fine line between saying, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Otherwise, you can't right. launch, right? Yeah. Um, and it, that it's okay to experiment. It's okay to test and learn. Um, but there's there are a couple of things, let's not kid ourselves, that can't fail, right? When you launch your brand. Like the website has to work,
0: right? right. The logo
1: has to not offend people. You have, to, yeah. <laughs> you have to have some basic things in place. Um, but with a relatively small team and on a relatively quick timeline, we've been off so I that. So I may have found a slightly better balance there, um, had I been able to.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's tough to know once you're in the middle of it. <laughs> well, kind of you know, like
1: things right? Things break halfway through. I mean, yeah. again, there were a couple of things that happened in this process that we did not anticipate where we lost a month or two.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, we made the right decisions in the moment to slow things down and go back and, and check again and, and make the right calls. Um, but that shortens the runway on everything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you've had some external validation that you guys have done a really good job. Can you talk about some of the awards that you've won? Yeah. Get a chance to brag.
1: Yeah. I, know. I was going to say, I wasn't prepared for that question, but we've actually won a bunch. Um, we, the most recent and the one I'm probably most proud of is we won a 2020 silver anvil um, for best brand campaign for professional services and or financial services. So, um, The reason I'm proud of that is because I think in law in particular, we tend to only look at our peer groups. Um, And so for me and for my team, and hopefully for the firm, certainly too, um, to be able to be recognized across all of professional services, right? To compete with the the major management consulting firms, the tech consulting firms, whomever, um, and to have them say, hey, it's really hard to make change in this industry. And this was bold, it was thoughtful um and it was differentiating i think was great validation for our team and and for the lawyers who put a lot in and took also took a risk right this is not just marketing taking right, right lawyers are the ones that have to go sit across from a client and feel proud right so that's,
0: yeah yeah
1: um so that one, we um we were recognized as the best website by a few um, internal legal organizations um, those are great because we didn't apply somebody just said hey this is awesome which is my
0: favorite yeah that's great yeah yeah. Well, congratulations. That's um, it's always nice to have external validation of an effort like that. And it must, especially as you said, beyond just marketing, others feel like, yeah, they are a part of that. And it's everyone's shared success. It's, uh, it's great. So last question, uh, and this is going to be a tough one. If you had to give one piece of advice to someone who's starting on this road or this journey to transformation, what would it be?
1: listen. Um, It really is. I mean, it's actually not a hard question to me because, again, the things that learn from my failures early in my career, right? um, But also the the things that have made the brands I have worked on the most authentic come from inside the organization. You can do all the research in the world. Um, You can look at every competitor in the market and think you found exactly the thing that people aren't talking about. Um, But if it's not organic, right? If it's, not, if it's not true to the people who are doing the work every day, it won't work. Um, if you find something that feels really common and really honest that comes from inside, it's so much easier to build on that. It may not be as, you know, fundamentally differentiated, but you can own it. Because yeah. it's, um, and so I think listen and really hear um, and figure out how to put those threads together. And that's, that's sort of the winning
0: that's a great piece of advice as one of my very first managers when I was out of undergrad said, telling ain't selling. <laughs> so if you're trying to convince someone to do something, you better be able to listen and uh, understand where they're coming from and, and know that no, there's, it doesn't, it's not one individual uh, that's going to make something happen, especially on something as big as this. So thank you. We appreciate your insights and your candor and, uh, Good luck with continue to living the brand and now that you are known and you've been seen as very successful. um, I think, you know, that's, again, the, the journey's never ended. And when you hit those kind of milestones, it's now what's next. How do we keep moving forward? So thank you, Leslie.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the time onward and upward.